what God's people said. Amen. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but it is a universal reality that husbands have the propensity to mess everything up, okay? Men in the room, I am with you. I know the pain, okay? I know this isn't just me, okay? So this is a universal truth for men everywhere. Um, Whenever our wives ask us to do something, we inevitably mess it up from big to small. We miss the mark. Paul was right. We all fall short, but sometimes, men, we fall short as well. So it's true, and Laurel asks me to do stuff all of the time, and I find a way to mess it up or miss the mark, or I just can't get it right, right? So the other night, Laurel and I were on our way to meet up with some friends. We're making the most of the summer. We're trying to have some fun, and so we're meeting some of our friends at Horseshoe Bay, and um, we as a group, we're going to take the ferry um, over to Bowen Island and have pizza, okay? It's something we do every year, and um, I wanted to be the proactive husband that I want myself to become one day, and so I got us there early. I missed all of the rush hour traffic, and I got us there early. Now, what I didn't know is getting us there early wasn't good enough, okay? I also had to find the perfect parking spot, okay? Now, what I didn't know is that there's an expensive lot, the main lot, and that's exactly where I parked. And so Laurel let me know, hey, you parked in the expensive lot. And so I was like, okay, stay here. I will fix this. So I leave my wife in the smoking hot car uh, in the dead of summer, and I run around frantically trying to find a cheaper spot. And so I'm running around looking like a crazy person. Eventually, I find it, the perfect spot. It was $10 cheaper than the one that I previously found, okay? So I run back to the car where my wife is, and I start yelling, get in, get in, start the car, let's go. And as I yell that, she shuts the door, and the car beeps. Now, what happens next is horrific. The car locks with the keys inside of the car. Have you experienced this phenomenon, okay? It is known to plague many husbands across the world. That is exactly what happened. And in that moment, I realized that I wasn't as bad as a husband as I realized, okay? I was like, oh my gosh, the keys are locked in the car, and it wasn't my fault. I I felt like I went from here to here as a husband. Now, I did not say that, okay? That that would be like crossing the line. Um, But what I did was I called a tow truck, and I let them know our situation, okay? And they let me know that they would send somebody right away, but it would only take four hours. And I was like, four hours? What are you so busy doing that a tow truck would take four hours? The best part is it costed $100 uh, for the tow truck to come unlock our car, and our car was still stuck in the expensive lot, okay? Uh, So it turned out the cheaper spot was not worth it whatsoever financially. Um, So this truck was coming in four hours. It was only five o'clock, and it wouldn't be there till nine. So I looked at my friends and said, you know what? You guys go without us. We'll just wait here. Help is on its way. And uh, my friend Marcus was like, dude, no, like, let's just all go. We'll take the ferry. We'll have pizza. We'll be back just in time for the tow truck to come. That's exactly what we did. We had a great night. The people that James is writing to this morning are faced with a very similar predicament. What should they do while they wait? If you remember last week, uh, Ben talked about the fact that these people are suffering. They're going through hardship. I talked about two weeks ago that this is a, a community of people who are being oppressed by the, the, the rich. And James is writing to them in their suffering, and he says this in James chapter 5. He says, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. So, 
are they just supposed to wait around? Are they just supposed to sit around and do nothing? Like, what does it mean for them to be patient and to stand firm? Sure, Jesus is coming back. I get that. But what do we do until then? See, what if we're not just waiting it out to the end? What if we're not just sitting around waiting for God to whisk us away to heaven? What if we can see heaven touch down to earth here and now? And James is going to say the way that we do that is through prayer. James says in James chapter 5 verse 13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. And it's like, wow, thanks, James. Brilliant advice, right? Like, if you're just like, have the rich stolen all of your money? Are you going through hell right now? Are you down and out? No worries. Just pray about it, right? Like, like James is like having a hakuna matata moment. Like, his advice sounds like your new age friend who just tells you to like manifest positivity into your life. You're like, dude, I'm going through the worst situation possible, and I'm just supposed to like think happy thoughts into the universe? Like, you just want me to pray? Like, think about the, the advice he's giving them. Not only is this ignorant, but it's insensitive to these people. Like, guys, Jesus is coming back soon. Until then, clench your teeth and wait it out. And if you do so, you can also pray. Like, why does James tell them to pray? Next he says, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. When James says, is anyone among you happy? He uses a term that means to be encouraged. He's speaking of somebody who's going through a situation with a level of encouragement and joy. And and the word that he's using seems to signify that these happy people are going through the same situation as those who are, quote, in trouble but they're going through it with a level of courage. They're going through it with a level of, of, of joy and happiness in this situation. And he tells them to sing. Why? It's a very weird thing to tell them to do. He tells them to do this because their courage or joy will strengthen other people. Their songs of praise will increase the level of faith in the room as they're going through this suffering, which means sometimes you're not just worshiping. You're pulling others up with you. As you're worshiping, you're actually increasing the level of faith in the room. And so James is saying, if you're going through this with a level of courage, let, you sing, let, let songs of praise come out of your mouth because it will increase the level of faith in the room. This echoes what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. James is in effect saying your faith is contagious for those who are going through suffering with you. So if you're encouraged in the face of suffering, then sing songs of praise. It will increase the faith of others. Now next what he says in verse 14 is, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now this makes sense when you realize that 38.5% of the gospel's narratives are about healing. 38.5% of the Gospels are about healing. And Jesus told his followers to, quote, heal the sick, raise the dead, and cleanse those who have leprosy, and drive out demons. He goes on to say, freely you have received, now freely give. See, if Jesus is our model, then we should expect to do the stuff that Jesus was doing. In fact, this is what Jesus said. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. 
In fact, that's exactly what Jesus does. He sends out the 12 to do what he had been doing, which is three things. Preaching that the kingdom of God has come near, or preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and casting out demons. He sends the 12 to do just this. It says this in Mark 6. It says, calling the 12 to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now, that was just for the 12, right? Like, healing isn't for today. That was just for the the 12 inner circle of Jesus. Jesus expected them to do that, but not us, right? Jesus expected the 12, uh, but this can't be for today. Well, later Jesus not only sends out the 12, but he sends out 72 other disciples to do the same thing, preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. In Luke chapter 10, we read that after that, the Lord appeared, uh, appointed 72 others, and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near to you. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. So not only the 12 set out, but here 72 others are sent out to do what Jesus was doing, healing the sick, casting out demons, and preaching the gospel. But the others are sent out to do the same as the 12, and then if that were not enough, if you're still here thinking, well, that was for them, this is now. That was for when Jesus was alive, but now Jesus has gone back to heaven, we should expect that there's no healing today. Well, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he sends out all of his followers to do what he had been doing. He says this in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey or observe, live out everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Jesus here speaking of the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus expected his followers in all times and places to do what he had been doing, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and casting out demons. See, healing was not only a normative part of discipleship to Jesus for the 12, it was a normative practice of discipleship to Jesus, both in the gospels and the book of Acts and the early church. See, Craig Keener, a New Testament um, scholar, says says this, Jesus' willingness to heal all who came to him clearly challenges those who think healing is abnormal today. Unless they wish to contend either that Jesus' character has changed or that his power in the world has diminished. So James tells us that we are waiting for Jesus' return, but as we do, as we wait for Jesus' return, we are supposed to participate in what Jesus was up to through praying for healing. 38% of the Gospels are about this. And clearly, Jesus expects us to do this today. Now, what James says next is surprising. He says in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? His call for them is to call the elders of the church to pray over them. See, this should uh, make us think, why can't they just pray for themselves to be well? Why can't they just gather their community together, their their close friends and family, and and get them to pray for them for healing? Why should we, in other words, call the elders of the church to pray for us? Why does James say this? Well, I think that James does affirm that all followers of Jesus can and will pray for others for healing. 
But James also affirms that there are different levels of spiritual authority that people possess. And so James is is assuming that you've probably already prayed for yourself. He's assuming that you've probably probably already called close friends and family to pray for healing, and yet you haven't seen breakthrough. And so he's calling these people to get the elders of the church to come around them, anoint them with oil, lay their hands on them, and pray for healing. So he says, go go to those who have spiritual authority in your community. Call the elders of the church, those who have spiritual authority in your community, and get them to pray for your healing. Now, the the second obvious question is, why prayer, right? Like, I've tried prayer. It doesn't work. I've cried out to God a thousand times and nothing. My prayers just seem to bounce off the ceiling. What's the use, right? Like, shouldn't we just wait for Jesus to come back like James has already said? That's our only hope, isn't it? Well, what if there's more going on? See, what you need to understand, and I'm going to say this a thousand times as your pastor, not everything that happens in this world is God's will. I'm going to say that again. Not everything that happens in this world is God's will. We, we know this because Jesus prayed, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus praying this assumes that, that his Father's will isn't always done on earth, unless if that's the case, he would have no use in praying that. But Jesus assumes that God's will isn't always done on earth as it is in heaven, and so he calls us to pray this. See, God's will can be resisted, For example, Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Or in 1 John 3, 8, John writes and says that Jesus came to, quote, destroy the works of the devil. And Peter later summarizing Jesus' ministry and and says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. What this means is sin, sickness, and death are not good things created by God. Sin, sickness, and death are not good things that are a part of the original creation. These are not from God. Listen to me. Sickness is not from God. It is from Satan. See, the Bible tells a story of a cosmic battle between God and Satan, but it also tells us that that Satan will lose that battle in the end. Are you with me? See, the devil... His will may be done on earth, but his time is short. He will be defeated once and for all, and one day God will come back and establish his kingdom on earth, and he will finally be enthroned as king of creation, and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what would you expect God to do when he finally comes back and deals with evil? What would you expect him to do when he finally comes back as king? We'd expect him to throw down on the devil. We'd expect him to unleash a cosmic beatdown on Satan, wouldn't we? That's what we do in the West, right? But what does Jesus do? He lays down his life. This looks weak. It looks powerless. This looks nothing like victory. See, as Jesus hangs on the cross a dying man, it, it is hard to imagine that this is what it looks like to be the king of creation. What does Jesus do when he comes to confront evil once and for all? he dies. Baxter Kruger writes, what happens when God invades the domain of darkness and sets up shop inside enemy territory? In the truest sense of the phrase, all hell breaks loose. And in an all-out attack, the evil one unleashes everything he has on Jesus. See, the powers of evil have been doing their worst on Jesus, and he bears it. He, in fact, takes it all the way to the cross, and there on the cross, he exhausts the powers of evil, and he overcomes it with love. 
The cross is what it looks like when God comes to deal with evil once and for all, sin, sickness, and death. See, on the cross, evil's power is exhausted and overcome by love. In fact, Paul writes that on the cross, Jesus, quote, disarmed the powers and authorities of darkness, and he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them on the cross. He would also write to the church in Corinth and say that, quote, none of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, somehow on the cross, Jesus overcame the powers of darkness. He overthrew the kingdoms and powers that that have corrupted our world and brought about sin, sickness, and death. But how could this be? How could the death of Palestinian Jew overthrow the powers of evil that, that daunt our world? How have these powers of evil been defeated? See, the first Christians believed that the cross was the great exodus moment that Israel had been looking towards. This was the great exodus moment where the victory of evil has been won and God has finally liberated his people from bondage and slavery. The power of evil, this this Pharaoh figure, has been dethroned. See, this means that everything has changed. Nothing's the same now that Jesus has defeated the powers of evil on the cross. Sin, sickness, and death have been defeated once and for all. So how are we doing? Are we tracking? Okay. So Jesus in summary, has not only defeated the powers of evil, he not only dealt with sin, sickness, and death on the cross, but according to James right here, he invites us to join him in prayer. He invites us to extend his kingdom, his shalom, his peace into the world, or as the way that Jesus prayed it, on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because new creation is breaking in. The dawn of a new era has begun, but how? Have you ever noticed that in John's gospel, Jesus rises from the dead, but John goes out of his way to tell us not once, but twice, that the day that Jesus rose from the dead was the first day of the week. A seemingly meaningless detail, but John goes out of his way to tell us twice that it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. Why does he say that? He is pointing to to this reality Because he is saying this is a dawn of a new creation. Just like Adam woke up on the first day of creation, here is our second Adam waking up on the first day of the week in the new creation. And if that wasn't enough, John tells us that Mary doesn't recognize Jesus after he's resurrected. She confuses him for a gardener, which is to say that Jesus is this new Adam in the garden. The Greek here is literally wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There is a new creation with a new Adam. This is the dawn of a new era. A new way and order has been ushered in through the resurrection of Jesus. And now we can say with full confidence, on earth as it is in heaven. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, writes that when Jesus healed people, he intended it to be clear that this wasn't just a foretaste of a future reality. This was reality itself. This is what it looked like when God was in charge. God's kingdom was coming, and as he taught his followers to pray on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, when we pray for people to be healed, we are participating in the inbreaking kingdom of God. We are participating in the inbreaking of a new creation where Jesus is enthroned as king. N.T. Wright continues in saying, we, sta- we take our stand in the place where prayer makes sense, at the place where heaven and earth overlap, at the place where our own present time and God's future time overlap. 
See, we can pray for people to get healed because God's kingdom has broken into our world, into our time and space. God's new creation project is unfolding right before our eyes, right here and right now. So when we pray for sick people to be healed, we are standing with one foot firmly planted on earth and with the other firmly planted in the age to come. We are standing in a world of sickness and death with one foot, but we have one foot in the coming world where there is healing, forgiveness, and hope. See, now the world is not yet as it should be. We need to be aware of this. We believe in the already but not yet of God's kingdom, meaning God's kingdom isn't fully here yet. We are waiting Jesus' return, but the resurrection of Jesus screams to us that the world is moving towards the renewal of all things. See, healing is a sign of the inbreaking reality of God's kingdom. It's evidence of a new order and a new world breaking in before our eyes. As John Wimber said, traditional Christian doctrine has always held that illness is the result of original sin, and its origins are in the kingdom of Satan. That is, illness is abnormal, not of God, and something Christ came to eradicate. It will have no place in the age to come. In other words, healing demonstrates that the kingdom of God has come near. That's what Jesus meant when he said, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then you can know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. He also said, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, healing demonstrates that the kingdom of God is breaking in before our eyes. It's at our fingertips. It's at hand in the words of Jesus. Are you with me? Okay. Um, years ago, when Laurel was first, my wife Laurel was first diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, we didn't know what to do. In fact, we didn't know much about this autoimmune disease whatsoever. What we did know is that things were progressing very fast, and Laurel's symptoms were getting worse and worse as the days went on. And our prayers we're not working. We, we prayed, we, we sought the face of God, we, we did everything we possibly could, and we came to a place where our prayers weren't working, so we called the elders of the church, we anointed Laurel with oil, and we prayed for her healing. Now, Laurel did go into remission for about a year, and a year later, everything went from bad to worse. Eventually, Laurel was hospitalized, and things did not look good. Now, I was left with the questions, does God not heal? Does he answer prayer? Does God even care? And if he does care, does he have the power to do anything about it? Like these were all of the questions that were rushing through my head, both as a pastor and as a husband of a wife who was very sick. Now eventually, um, after a couple of weeks, Laurel was released from the hospital as things began to improve. But in faith, we gathered together once again the elders of the church to anoint her lay hands on her, and pray for her healing. And as we laid hands on, on Laurel, we asked God to move in power. We shed tears together. We shared prophetic words. We even felt God come near. It was a really powerful moment, one that I'll never forget. And then the unexpected happened. Laurel miraculously got better. It was a miracle. It was, it was such an encouragement for us to see um, this happen. And we began to share the story with a few close people because we wanted time to pass before we shared this with the masses. But I remember a few people coming up to us on a Sunday morning at church and telling us how moved their faith was to ask God to do things in their life. But soon after that, things came crashing back into our lives and Laurel was unwell yet again. So does this work? Is healing for today. 
Another way to ask this, has God's kingdom broken into the present world? Has the resurrection of Jesus made any difference to reality here and now? See, we live in the already but not yet of God's kingdom. It's breaking in, but it's also not fully here yet. So sometimes people get healed, and sometimes people don't. Sometimes people come to faith, and sometimes people walk away. See, sometimes miracles happen, but sometimes we're left wondering where God even is. But one day, God will answer every prayer for healing, for breakthrough, and renewal for his children as they enter into his long-awaited kingdom and as he wipes away every tear from their eyes. One day, God's yes and amen will be the final answer to every prayer for healing for followers of Jesus. James continues, and he says, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. The term God will raise them up can speak of the coming resurrection, or it can speak of being healed in the present. It probably means both. But given the context, it it has to do with being healed in the present. See, miracles happen. God answers prayer. People get healed. It is an undeniable reality that when we pray, people get healed. Again, to quote Craig Keener, Jesus' willingness to heal all who come to him certainly challenges those who think healing is abnormal today unless they wish to contend either that Jesus' character has changed or that his power in the world has declined. See, Jesus still heals today. We need to understand this. And James here says that when we call the elders together to pray, that sometimes they get healed. But if they don't experience healing here, his promise is that God will raise them up. They will finally be healed at the resurrection of Jesus. Again, James says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up, and if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So why does he say the prayer of faith will make them well? Is this name it and claim it theology, blab it or grab it, whatever you want to call it, prosperity gospel? Is this some sort of just manifested into being through positive thinking? Do we manifest healing into reality through positive thinking? Is this what James is saying? What is the prayer offered in faith? Okay, here's a few uh, notes on on this. Uh, The first thing I want to say is there are different levels of faith. The first kind of faith is what we would call weak faith, okay? In Mark chapter 9, a father comes to Jesus asking for healing for his son. And this father says to Jesus, if you can make him well. See, this man had weak faith. He wasn't sure if Jesus was able to heal his son. And some of us are in this place. We have weak faith. We're not sure if God is able to heal. We're not sure if God does answer prayer. We're not sure if any of this makes any real difference, and we have weak faith. The second type of prayer of faith is some faith, okay? In Mark chapter 1, we, we read of a man with leprosy who comes to Jesus and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This man has some faith, okay? He had faith to believe that Jesus could. He's not sure Jesus would. See, and this is so many of us here, if we're honest, right? There's so many things that we know that Jesus can do. We're just not sure if he's willing to do those things. This is some faith. But let me say this. What we believe about God affects how and if we pray, right? Like, if you think, for instance, that God only gives you what you deserve, you'll never ask for anything great. 
But grace, by definition, means that God gives us what we don't deserve. He goes over the top. There's, there's grace upon grace upon grace, according to Paul in the book of Romans. What we believe about God affects how and if we pray. Jesus said this, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? What Jesus is saying here is that we can ask our Father because he is a good Father who longs to give good gifts to his children. What you believe about prayer affects how and if you pray. Lord, if you are willing. Jesus' response to this man is, of course I am willing. Be healed. The third type of faith, so there's weak faith, there's some faith, and number three, there's great faith. In Mark chapter 5, we read about a woman who's suffered from an issue of blood for 12 years. She's tried everything. She's gone to all the doctors. She's done everything in her power. And it says that she goes to Jesus, and she thinks to herself, if I can just reach out and touch his garments, I will be healed. This woman had great faith. Here's the point that I want to make this morning. There are different levels of faith. But notice that Jesus heals all of these people regardless of their level of faith. Each one of these people came to Jesus with different levels of faith, but all of them received the good gift of healing from Jesus. This dismantles the myth that you won't get healed unless you have enough faith. See, sometimes Jesus heals people who have faith. Other times he he heals people, like in Mark chapter 2, who don't have faith, but their friends have faith for them. Other times in the Gospels, we read of people who are physically dead and cannot exercise any faith. In fact, Jesus clears the room, and they're the only person in the room there, and he heals them. See, faith, it, it comes in different levels, and Jesus will heal regardless of your level of faith. And yet, James here strangely makes a connection to faith and healing. But we also see this in the Gospels as well. Here's a few samples. Mark 2, 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark 5, 34. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Mark 10, 52. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Acts 14, 9 through 10. He listened to Paul, and as he was speaking, And Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed. And he called out, stand on your feet. At that, the man jumped and began to walk. He saw that he had faith to be healed. And Mark 6, 3 through 6, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they all took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and his own home. He could not do many miracles there, except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Here's what you've got to get. Faith cannot be mustered. This is the second thing I want to say. First, there's different levels of faith. Number two, faith cannot be mustered. You can't just work up faith. You can't just will yourself into believing. The author of Hebrews, in contrast to this, tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. This means that the one who gives us faith is Jesus, and the one who increases our faith is Jesus. So our job is to fix our eyes on Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. His job is to increase our faith. 
Our only job is to look to the healer. His job is to increase the level of faith that we possess. We cannot muster up faith. He increases our faith. So how do we pray for healing? Well, if you lack faith, pray like Baptist, okay? God, if you're willing, right? God, if you're able. Um, pray to the level of faith that you have. You can pray like a Baptist, like in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Bible, be healed, right? Uh, in other words, pray with the faith that you've got. But if you do have faith, pray like a Pentecostal. Declare, kick and evict the demon. De- tell the sickness to, to leave. Leg, be healed in Jesus' name. Sing, sing in tongues. Like, if you've got the faith for it, go for it. This isn't a formula. God's job is to heal. He's the healer. We're just the messenger. We're just the ones who ask. We're just the ones who pray and contend for God to move. It's his job to move, and it's his job to increase our faith. So, what do we do when James says in verse 15, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven? Are people not healed because they have sin in their lives? This verse has done so much damage in the modern church. What I want to say is there's different reasons why sickness could be present in someone's life. Number one, sometimes sickness is the result of sin, right? And it's not, necessi- not necess- necessarily that God doesn't want to heal. It could be that there's actually a deeper healing that God wants to bring about. God actually wants to heal the root issue of the, the illness. So God actually wants to, to get down to the things like anger, unforgiveness, and disorder in your life that might actually be the root cause of that illness, Sometimes uh, sickness is a result, not of sin that you've committed, but, but the sin of somebody else who has committed against you, right? Uh, a great example of this is most autoimmune diseases are caused by uh, environmental conditions, things like the overuse of antibiotics and toxins that are put into our food. Okay, so what does that have to do with sin, right? Well, for instance, instead of letting the ground Sabbath, this is something that we practiced right up until like the 1930s, um, instead of letting the ground rest, what we do is we just pump it full of seeds so that it keeps producing, keeps producing. But in order to actually factory farm this way, we've got to use lots of chemicals in our food. And so we pump things like wheat full of chemicals, and then we wonder why people suffer with celiac disease. See, sometimes sin, uh, sickness, is the result, not just sin that you've committed, but the sin of other people, sin like greed. Other times, sickness is not the result of sin, but it's the result of Satan. Acts 10.38 says that Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. According to Jesus, people are sick um, because they are afflicted by Satan or the devil, the accuser. See, the desire of Satan is clear according to Jesus in John 10.10. His desire is to come and kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus' desire is that they might have life and life to the full. See, Jesus told us to pray that his will would be done on earth, meaning there's another will being done on earth. So sometimes sickness is a result of sin. Sometimes it's a result of Satan. Other times it's simply the result of the broken world that we live in. See, sickness is part of the fallen world that you and I live in day in and day out. See, sometimes people are born sick or struggle with an illness because we live in a broken world. God's way and order of his new creation hasn't fully broken in yet, and so sometimes people are sick. So how are we doing? Good? Okay, I'm doing good too. We're almost done. Um, Here's how I want to end. One of the main reasons we don't see more, more healing today is because we haven't raised up disciples who know how to do or trained how to do the stuff that Jesus did. 
We talk a lot about what Jesus did. We preach lots of sermons. We have lots of courses and small groups, but we don't actually teach people or equip people to do the stuff that Jesus did. So if we want to see people healed, we've got to equip them to do the stuff that Jesus did. Jesus told us to teach them to observe, obey, live out all that I've commanded. Not to know, understand, but the word that he uses means to live out or practice. Okay, so years ago, Ben and I were leading a gathering kind of like this. It was an evening service for young people. And um, Ben had just finished preaching, and there was a lady at the back of the room who was walking forward toward the mic. Now, Ben just preached on the Holy Spirit and prophecy, so we were like, yes, God, there's going to be a heavy revy. Like, this is going to be incredible, right? Like, somebody is about to prophesy, you know, whatever. And so this person walks up to the mic, grabs the mic, starts speaking. We realize this person doesn't have the spirit, but is on drugs, okay? They start, like, yelling profanities into the microphone, and I'm like, dear God, what is happening, okay? And so I run to the front, grab the mic, and then walk the person back to have some donuts, okay? That's, that's what you do in that situation. The basic idea here is that we had no idea what we were doing whatsoever. It was turned into absolutely chaos in moments. So I say this because we've got to train people how to do the stuff that Jesus was doing. So how do we pray for healing here at PKC? First thing I've got to say is there's no formula. There's no, this is the correct way you pray for people, every other way is wrong. Here is a way that can help you understand how to pray for other people. What we do first is we do an interview, okay? So this means somebody comes forward when we do a call for prayer, like we'll do in a moment, and we'll ask them a few questions, like, how can I pray for you? That's a good question to ask, yeah? Um, When did this start? What was going on in your life when you first started to notice signs of this sickness? Was there, was there anything traumatic going on in your life? The question we almost always ask is the question that Jesus asks blind Bartimaeus. What do you want God to do for you? This helps us get crystal clear on how we are to pray. So we interview. Number two, we wait on the Holy Spirit, okay? So we simply wait for the Holy Spirit. We lay hands on the person's shoulder, not on their head. We don't do anything weird. Just lay their hands on their shoulder, and we ask God if he wants to do anything or say anything, and then we wait, It's kind of awkward. We just stand there quietly and we wait for the Holy Spirit. And if God wants to reveal something, we believe that he will. And whatever he says, we'll do. Maybe it's a prophetic word. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe he reveals a a root cause of the issue and maybe he doesn't, but we simply make space for God to speak or act. So we interview, we wait on the Holy Spirit, and then we pray. It's pretty obvious, right? We pray. We pray simple things like, come Holy Spirit, more of you God. Yes, Jesus, we bless what you're doing in this person. Probably the, the, the number one thing you'll hear us pray is, come God and heal. Come heal. That's it. Two words. Come heal. So we pray for this person. Here's the thing that we are committed to. We don't have to use super spiritual language, right? You don't need to shout in tongues or do anything wild. You don't need to like make a scene or, or do anything really because working something up or manufacturing experience is not a sign of faith. It is often a sign of a lack of faith, right? We don't hype the spirit up. We wait for the Spirit to come down. We're just casual and calm. We're just normal. I believe that the supernatural should be supernatural, okay? You don't have to work anything up. Just simply be an agent of God's love. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Richard Foster, who wrote a lot about prayer, says that healing prayer is merely a way of showing love to people in need. He continues and says, I have discovered that the most effective prayer ministries are those that are nurtured by a loving community and that emphasize teams of prayer. 
See, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, make love your aim and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. So, so my, my challenge for us this morning, if love isn't your aim, please don't desire the, the gifts of the Spirit because people just get hurt. We've got to make love our aim. The goal of prayer ministry, the goal of any spiritual gift is that person receives the love of the Father. So just pray and be normal. You don't have to pray long prayers. Most of Jesus' prayers were very short and simple. Here's a couple of them. I'm willing, be clean. Take up your mat and walk. Try that one. Uh, Come forth. Here's, Here's the best one. Go. One word, two letters, right? One syllable, go. So we interview. We wait for the Holy Spirit. We pray, and then last, we follow up, okay? Um, when we follow up, we, we ask them, how are you doing? Do you feel any different? Uh, do you sense anything that God may, might be doing or saying during that time that we we're praying for you? Um, if they got healed, praise God. That is the time to shout and make a scene, right? Um, but if they didn't, bless them and, cont- and, and encourage them to keep praying. Jesus talks a lot about persistence in prayer. The end goal, again, is that person experiences the love and presence of God. And if they get healed, praise God, we will throw a party. That is a gift. So this is how we pray at Poor Kels. There are many ways that we can pray, but this is the way that we do prayer ministry here at our church. Okay, one last thought. Next, James writes that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So who's the righteous person in this passage, right? Is it the person who is perfect? Is it the person who's like, has all the theological knowledge? Is it the person who went to Bible college and can play the guitar and speak in tongues and sing in tongues? Who is the righteous person? According to the context, this is the one verse I didn't get to, it's the person who confesses their sins. It's the person who is right with Jesus. Not perfect, but confessed their sins to Jesus. Randy Clark writes that, quote, God is not looking for the perfect. I cannot stress that enough. God is not looking for the perfect. He is looking for the righteous. This is the power of Jesus' blood, that the unrighteous have become righteous in God's sight. See, it's God's desire to use broken vessel. Here's the thing I want you to get loud and clear. It's God's desire to use you for prayers of healing. It's God's desire that all of his children get to play. It's God's desire that you are used to see heaven invade earth. So you don't need to convince God. You don't need to twist his arm. It's his desire to heal, and it's his desire to use you for healing. God wants to use you. Not a professional, not not a pastor, not not somebody who's, who's got it all together, not the perfect, but the righteous. He wants to use his kids, and by the blood of Jesus, you have become the righteous. So who does God want to use for, for prayer of healing? You, his church, his people. And if that weren't clear enough, he uses one last example. He uses the example of a man named Elijah. Now, Elijah is this wild dude in the Old Testament who called fire down from heaven, rose the dead, and controlled the weather with his prayer life. Imagine, like, that kind of prayer life, right? And James specifically uses him because his prayer life seems unattainable. His resume is too large, too expansive, too incredible. And so he strategically uses Elijah to say that God can use even you to bring about healing. Your prayer life can be effective just like Elijah. So the question is, will you take God at his word? So what James does is he says, God used Elijah who was a human being just like you. James's point is clear. If you're sick, call the elders together to pray. If your prayers haven't been answered, but his other encouragement, 
is now you have been commissioned by the Spirit of God to do what Jesus had been up to, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and driving out demons. The question for us this morning, because God answers prayer, God heals today. His only question is, will we take him at his word? That God hears your prayer and wants you to be used to bring about answers to prayer for healing in the right here and right now. So let me end the way that James began. Is anyone here in pain? Is anyone sick? Is anyone here in need of healing? Let them call the elders of the church to anoint them with oil and pray for their healing. So I'm gonna call a band back up. Um, and I'm also going to call the prayer team just to meet over um, here to my left. Um, and so why don't we just stand to our feet as we respond to what Jesus is doing in the room. You guys can stand with me. So in a moment, um, we're going to wait on the Holy Spirit, but in a moment I'm going to call people who um, feel like they want to respond. And there's no pressure to anyone. And you can chat with me, and we can set up a, a time that we can um, practice this in maybe a more private environment if that's more comfortable to you. But if you feel compelled, called, moved by, by God to respond, we would love to pray for you. So there's going to be a team, and um, it's going to be the three of us, the, the, the Holy Trio, and we're going to pray for you. Um, we would love to pray for you, okay? Um, so here's what we're going to do. Let's wait on the Holy Spirit. We believe that God is present. Um, the Bible talks about the omnipresence of God, but the Bible also talks about the manifest presence of God, that God reveals his presence in special moments and time. So um, would you just raise your hands out like this in front of you? This is just an ancient posture in the Christian tradition of receiving from God. We just posture ourselves with expectancy for God to move. So God, we pray as those who have prayed a thousand times before us, come Holy Spirit. We wait on you.